Hello, everyone. What's up? Welcome to another episode of Space Talk. This is episode 79. I am so shocked that we've made it to this many episodes already, um, but also just super, super happy that you guys are here and that you are here because you're interested in space and that you want to learn a little bit more about space. And what I love is that I'll, a lot of times, learn with you guys. So I'll either learn from you or we will explore something that I did not know, um, such as some really fun things that we explored last week. Um, if you guys wanted to tune into those episodes on string theory and multiverses and consciousness and just really, really fun out there topics. Um, so first off, hello to those joining live. Swapnil, good to see you here. I feel like I haven't gone live this early in a very, very long time. I don't think I ever have actually here on Space Talk. Um, so I am happy to see that you're here because I know that it is very early out or very usually late in the day out by you uh, by the time that I actually end up going live, which is usually later. I was actually uh, filming a little uh, short snippet this morning for a YouTube channel um, that I am partnering with, and I will let you guys know once that episode is out. So I figured since I'm already up early, might as well just go live here on Space Talk. Um, so this episode is all about the different astronomical events that are happening in our night sky this week, um, and then some other things as well, such as space history. Um, yes, very unusual timing, Astro KV, for sure. Um, so as we always like to try to do to start off an episode, it's, I like to kick off with some kind of question for you guys to answer in the chat. Um, some, most of the time, it's not space-related. Uh, usually, it's, it's related to just all the different things that have to do with life. Um, so in that case, um, let's see, I was out on a nature trail yesterday. And so with that being said, um, what would be one of the most surprising things to you about the nature here on earth? What would be one of the most surprising about her here on earth? So for me, I think one of the most surprising things, <laughs> the first thing that comes to my mind is the frog, the specific type of frog that can freeze and its heartbeat stops. So it basically enters a state of, I guess, death from what we understand. Um, and then once it defrosts, it, its heartbeat starts again and it comes back to what we understand as life. Um let me see, frog species that undergoes like cryo and then defrosts. I'm trying to look it up. I saw it in a really cool nature documentary and I'm trying to see which one it was. Um, here we go. I'm on this really cool National Geographic site. This is a blog post that talks about a frog that freezes and thaws, plus more ways animals cope with cold. Um, oh. I have to enter my email in order to continue. Okay, well, in that case, not going to do that right now. But yeah, so that's probably one of the most shocking or surprising things to me about nature. There are tons of different things. So let me know what you think. Um, and awesome, just got off from work. Really cool. I'd love to hear it. So let me know what you guys think. Uh, feel free to share that in the chat. Alrighty, so let's jump into our different space events for this week. Um, I'm going to go ahead and kick off with our must-see celestial events. Then we'll go into a deep sky object because we finally have one this week that is within optimal visibility. Then our moon phase, space history, and then we'll end with astronomy term of the week. Okay, so tomorrow, May 24th, 
the moon is starting to travel quite a lot. Um, I mean, it's always kind of traveling uh, amongst our skies. We're able to see it transiting and uh, going through different constellations. But right now we are to see it passing Neptune, Mars, and Jupiter. So at 6 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time, it passes four degrees south of Neptune. Then at 4 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, it passes three degrees south of Mars. And finally, at 8 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, it passes three degrees south of Jupiter. This is tomorrow, May 24th. And some of you might already be coming close to uh, that date, to being May 24th, to being tomorrow. Then moving forward into May 26th, the the moon is now passing south of Venus at about 0.2 degrees below it, around 11 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. So we really have the moon sort of just going through all these different uh, planetary visibilities in our sky. And the moon right now is is slowly approaching a new moon. So it's just coming out of third quarter. It is slowly now going to start to get darker and darker and eventually become what we see as a new moon phase, which is totally shadowed. Um, So up until then, you should be able to start to see it in the sky with these planets. And just a little reminder, if you guys don't already know about this, when I mentioned the different degrees in the sky, uh, an easy way to be able to measure that is just by using our hands. So if you were to use your fist at arm's length from the index finger knuckle to your pinky knuckle is about 10 degrees in the sky. This is for an average adult fist. Your pinky width would be about one degree. So a little bit of perspective there. Then on May 28th, the moon is now passing 0.3 degrees south of Uranus. Now, this is in the morning, 10 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time. Again, if you're on a different time zone, you may be able to see this at a different time of the day. Um, So, you know, 10 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time, maybe go ahead and put in your time zone. It might be dark already by you, so you might be able to to see that. Although Uranus is a pretty tricky planet to... uh, barely see visibly uh, without any type of equipment. Um, If you're in really, really dark skies, maybe, uh, but it's kind of depending on like what its magnitude is. So kind of how bright it's looking at different times of the year. But you might want to just get yourself a simple pair of binoculars with a small amount of uh, magnitude increase. So like uh, 10 by 50 uh, would be would be doable to be able to try to catch some of these further out planets. And lastly, on May 28th, Mars passes 0.6 degrees south of Jupiter at 8 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. So that should be pretty cool to see uh, because you're going to have both of these planets. Mars, the red planet, it's going to look kind of reddish in our sky. You should be able to maybe make that out if you're in a low light polluted city um, or out in the country. And Jupiter is going to be very, very luminous. Jupiter is one of the brightest objects in our night sky. So Jupiter, uh, as as well as usually Venus, but Venus is not visible uh, right now in the evening time. Let's see. Actually, let's see. Actually, no, it, it is it, it is visible, but around this area of the sky for Mars, it's going to be a little bit, yeah, a little bit, a little bit in a different direction for you. So let's actually look up where that is, which by the way, if you want to know where exactly to face and where to look, I highly recommend going to telescope.org. They're interactive sky charts. I'm going to go ahead and share the link in the chat for you all. This way you could actually see 
you know, the direction that you would need to face. So you could put in your zip code or your location. If you have, you're outside of the United States, you can always look up your longitude and latitude on uh, geodatos.net. And then you can put in your longitude and latitude manually into the sky chart. And then you could generate a sky chart based on, of course, you know, your location. And you should be able to see where exactly to look. So if I now put in my location, I am currently looking for Venus. So let's go ahead and check out where Venus is going to be rising. You could go ahead and just sort of put in different times um, until you eventually see it. You're also able to, at the bottom, select, you know, if you want to see the planet names or if you wanted to, you know, put in like the the boundaries or, you know, it kind of just depends on on what it is exactly that you are, you're sort of looking for. Um, you can also see different deep sky objects here. So I, I just love this source overall. Um, so moving forward, um, for our deep sky objects this week, we finally have one that is in our optimal visibility for both the northern and southern hemisphere. This is on May 28th is a globular cluster known as M4. It's in the constellation Scorpius. It's at a magnitude of 5.6, so pretty faint, uh, but you could definitely see it with a telescope or binoculars as long as you have clear skies. And for my friends in the Northern Hemisphere, anyone located at 43 degrees north latitude or lower could see it. So if you're further north of 43 degrees latitude and just, you know, you can go ahead and, and look that up real quick. So let's go to uh, geodatos.net. Let's go ahead and put in, let's see, I'll just go ahead and put in um, New York just for reference real quick. Uh, New York, hmm. New York City. There we go. So it is at 40 degrees north. So New York would be very close to the limit of what you'd be able to see. So anyone probably further north, uh, again, by like two more degrees. So at 43 degrees north latitude, you won't be able to see this cluster. So if you're in Canada or further north of that, um, you probably won't be able to see it. But for those who could see it in the Northern Hemisphere, it's going to start to rise around 10.46 p.m. Central Daylight Time. This is for, I just put in my location, so Austin, Texas. You could definitely put in your location. But it should be rising sometime around your evening, like around just about 11 p.m. local time. So kind of depending on where you are. Uh, just go ahead and check that out. But for the Northern Hemisphere, it's going to start to rise about 20 degrees above your horizon. This is your southeastern horizon. It's going to be not that high up. Uh, so you might want to wait a little bit for it to reach its highest point, which isn't that much higher. It's only 33 degrees. Uh, this will be at about 1.30 a.m. Uh, and this is going to be above your southern horizon. So kind of up to you uh, if you're able to get up on a like higher level. And this is what I basically talk about all the time. I'm just like, get higher, elevate, high, more highly elevated, go up on a hill, go up on a rooftop. Uh, then you should be able to really see this better because you really want to get above any of those obstructed views that you would usually be facing on your horizon, such as buildings and trees and stuff like that. So for the Southern Hemisphere, uh, I just went ahead and put in Santiago, Chile. 
it's just one of the places that I know of in the Southern Hemisphere that I've been to, so I just decided to put it in. Um, and for this location, M4 rises at 8.16 p.m. local time. This is about 20 degrees above the eastern horizon, so also not that high up to start. But the Southern Hemisphere has favorable conditions because when it reaches its highest point at about 12.43 a.m. local time, it's going to be 83 degrees above the northern horizon. So really, really high up. Um, and that's going to be, yeah, really, really uh, easy and pretty awesome for viewing this. Uh, so if you wanted to like bring out a telescope, all you have to do is really point it up pretty high. Um, and, and, you know, obviously in, in the correct direction, uh, maybe put in the right ascension and declination, which we talked about in last week's episode. Uh, if you do have a digital telescope, you can do that. Um, and you should be able to see it which would be pretty, pretty great. You don't have to like look super low. Okay. Let's see. The only thing restricting elevation is the slowed passage of time near the earth's surface. The only thing restricting elevation is a slowed passage time near the earth's surface. Um, not exactly know what, what you, what you mean by that soft nail, but, um, I guess what I'm referring to is like, just if when it's super low on the horizon, um, if you're like on flatlands, you know, and you have like just really like acres and acres of flatlands, if you're like out in the middle of a country or something like that, then it'll be a little bit easier to see things that are much lower on the horizon. Um, but if you're, you know, if, if your view is being blocked by lots of trees or buildings or other things, then, you know, like you're just not even going to be able to see it. Uh, so like if you're in a really big city, It'll be really tricky to, to catch things, even if they're super high up, like, you know, in the zenith, so like directly overhead, um, that that even then it's I've, I've run into that difficulty before uh, when I was in New York because the buildings are just so tall. And so like, it's really tricky to catch things that are that are far away um, just because you don't have a, a very like wide view of the sky. Um, so general relativity. Okay, cool. Um, so <laughs> maybe I made a mistake of doing a podcast so early because um, I don't know if it's just me or what, but I'm not necessarily following <laughs> what what what, uh, what what you're saying here. But um, yes, definitely, uh, I, I understand the point of what you're saying about the the bulge of you know the Earth at its equator because it's this you know oblate spheroid. Uh, and how that's in reference to sort of having like, you know, obviously rocket launches happening along there because you're just closer to the sky. But I, I'm kind of speaking about the apparent view. So like perspective wise, uh, that has to do with stargazing when you have, you know, an obstruction of like trees in the way um, or like buildings in the way. But either way, I'll just keep moving forward because I don't think we're really on the same page there. Um, so the moon phase of this week is going to be May 30th which is the new moon. This will be about 7.30 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time. So for our space history, uh, we've got a few events, uh, a few different things. Um, so let's jump into it. May 28th, in the year 1764, Charles Messier discovered M9. A lot of globular clusters visible right now. So this was a globular cluster uh, in the right leg of Ophiuchus. And um, yet again, another globular cluster was discovered um, in the same year, 
The Next Day by Charles Messier in the constellation Ophicus. Uh, this is M10. So M9 and M10 both discovered two globular clusters uh, within the, you know, the same year, the same month, the same week, one day apart. Uh, and this one is, of course, known as M10. For a little bit of perspective, this is located just about 14,000 light years away from Earth. So this is about 14,300 light years away. Then on May 30th in 1966 was the launch of Surveyor 1, which was the first lunar lander in the series. There was actually a whole series of Surveyor lunar landers. Um, and this was the first to actually help develop soft landing technology. You guys might have heard about soft landing before when you've seen any type of uh, launch or landing, literally, um, whether it's the rovers on Mars or it's um, a spacecraft that is coming, uh, let's see, maybe yeah, planning to just land on on like an asteroid. Uh, you, you have a soft landing. It's so like an asteroid venue, I remember, that's being all over the news. The soft landing is, is you know, be, being approached. And um, this is kind of the first time that this technology ended up being developed it was being tested. It wasn't even like, I mean, it just, it really astonishes me to think about this time period where people uh, really had to try to base things just off of what they understood based on mathematics, the bodies of mass, their effects of gravity, based on what we were just talking about in the chat with Swapnil, uh, Einstein's theory of general relativity, understanding how these objects just really exist in space, and then how our technology is able to have this great distance to us and be able to launch it from our surface, arrive to another planet, and then be able to land without it getting ruined or destroyed or crash landing. Um, and so this was one of the first missions. So they had to do a lot of example missions. And so Surveyor 1 was the first one to really work on this technology. Um, this later provided essential engineering data and technique that are still used today, both robotic and also, you know, human landings, uh, Apollo missions, and fingers crossed for all the future ones as well. Um, this also launched from Cape Canaveral, Florida, uh, from Launch Complex 36A on an Atlas Centaur, Centaur D rocket. Uh, so this is also really cool because uh, some really exciting things came out of the Surveyor 1 mission. Just a little spoiler alert. Um, that is going to be in next week's space history. So for June... Um, and I'm not going to really go into it right now because I do want it to be be a surprise, but uh, or it's not really a surprise. You guys could literally look this up if you wanted to. Uh, but a lot of really, really wonderful things came out of this mission uh, and really some of the very first early spacecraft missions anyway. And lastly, we have May 30th in 1975. The European Space Agency, or also known as ESA, was founded. So this was the 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 year that the date that the European Space Agency was was born in our society, which is pretty exciting. Um, I have a list of all the different space agencies and when they were founded, um, and I've begun to now finally include them in all of my um, weekly transmissions and, of course, my space history things. There's tons of space history stuff, by the way. I went into a rabbit hole yesterday and I found these links to. Um, Oh my gosh, it was just insane. I'm going to pull up a couple bookmarks right now because I want to share these with you all. Uh, there are, so I have one for NASA. I have one for, what was the other one? It was, 
Um, <laughs> I'll find it in a bit, but um, yeah, EA. So this is astronautics.com and there's a huge space history calendar and then there's a NASA uh, space history calendar as well. And so these are all the different missions. This even, I, I, I think what shocked me the most was that I clicked on, I think it was just May 30th. And there was a lot of birthdays, which is, you know, pretty normal. But then there was a ton of missile launches. I mean, just like, like literally the development of missiles. And like, I knew this, you know, I, I knew this by being so passionate about space and rockets and, you know, not being a rocket scientist, but really liking, you know, just space exploration in general. And, and so like going to launches and being on, on, on facilities where they launch rockets and, and I knew that there was a lot of militaristic influence and there was a lot of missile development because rockets literally look like missiles. They're just used for different things um, sometimes. And so, but it just really, really astonished me how much there was of just, yeah, like, uh, of just a lot of just missile development. So let's uh, take a look real quick at, I clicked on, I guess it was... May. Let's see. It was, I want to actually pull this up for you all. It was May. It was 2022. I clicked on and it says forecast for upcoming anniversaries. And it's like the Army's Jupiter IRBM. Um, then there's the, uh, yeah, just, just a whole bunch of other stuff. So here, I'll share the link with you all in case you guys want to read this on your own. Um, and I do think it's, it's quite, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm still processing kind of how I, uh, sort of feel, I guess, about all this, but I, I do think it's, it's quite interesting. Loki slogan, money. Yeah. Dollar signs. That's, that's what it is kind of at the end of the day. Um, but I don't know. It's, it's, it's definitely interesting. You know, it's like, there's that argument of, you know, there's a lot of positive stuff that came out of, kind of the negative stuff. So like these developments of, of like, yeah, war materials, missiles, things like that. Um, and yet we have things like space exploration and rockets and, you know, scientific missions, scientific findings, and like all these wonderful things that came out of it. And yet it came from a place of like, you know, not unhealthy competition. I was going to say like, you know, competition can sometimes maybe be beneficial, but unhealthy competition as in like a war between two very big nations. Um, and I think that that's kind of just a little bit offsetting if I may say so. Um, and it says, Eslin Paul says, it's truly fascinating how meticulously we understand the universe's workings, at least in our pocket of the universe. Yeah. Which, which was, that's such a perfectly written statement. Uh, especially to segue into our astronomy term of the week, which is spectroscopy, and the this very like just just uh, technique just ties together with so many other kinds of techniques that literally lead us to Esalen Paul's statement right there, which is about how much we understand about our universe just from being right here on this one beautiful blue marble uh, in space. And, and how much we've been able to really just gain information and knowledge because of the different like techniques and things that we developed and studied and researched. Uh, and I just think that's so exciting. So spectroscopy. Um, if you guys received my weekly transmission, uh, let me know. I hope you guys enjoyed the images I put in there. I found them online. 
I did put the credits in there as well. Uh, but what I typed up was uh, spectroscopy is the technique of measuring an object's electromagnetic spectra, specifically measuring the emission slash absorption of light and other radiation of matter. And so uh, you guys might have seen a prism before. I actually have one right in front of me. Uh, and so it splits light. It's able to cause the light to be broken up into all the different components that make up what we see as white light, which is actually a rainbow. This is the spectrum. This is the visible light spectrum. It's a rainbow of colors. Um, and by understanding how each of these combine together to make white light, we've been able to understand things like how light behaves, how light travels with different types of uh, wavelengths, different frequencies, and also really importantly, how that ties in with the broader understanding of the EM spectrum or electromagnetic spectrum, because it's a huge component. That's electromagnetic spectrum is an image I attached in here, which is super teeny tiny. I don't know why I didn't just make it bigger. Um, and the visible light portion is just a small amount of the broader scale of things that exist that we can't see, but we can measure through different types of equipment that we've developed as humanity. So you have the very longest wavelength, which is radio waves. Then you have microwaves, infrared, visible, ultraviolet, x-ray, and gamma ray. And as you're approaching from left to right, it is getting more compressed. Those waves are getting shorter. The wavelength is getting shorter. The frequency is getting bigger. It's faster. There's more, more waves. Um, and so they're really, really powerful, really powerful stuff. Uh, this is why they are damaging to our skin cells. Ultraviolet, eye sunburn, like really bad. Uh, and x-rays also not that good could cause mutation in our cells. That's why when I go to the dentist, I like really am so like, I'm like, all right, I know the, I wear like a little chest mat on me, like a vest. And I know that they're like, you know, a lower emission. It's not like they're zapping me with really high amounts of x-rays, but in a sense, they are still zapping us with, with uh, some x-rays to be able to see things like our skeletal system. Um, because x-rays can penetrate through our muscles and our skin to be able to see our bones um, oh, did I leave out ultraviolet? I thought I, I had mentioned it. Ultraviolet is very important, especially because as I mentioned about getting sunburnt, it is something that we receive every day we step outside and we have to be careful, uh, not to overexpose ourselves to it, which is also why it's very, um, yeah, it's really intense in space because when you don't have protection, uh, to our, our very delicate cells, uh, we can, we can get really, uh, really bad damage to it. Um, and then, uh, and then of course, gamma rays as well, which are some of the most like just strong bursts of energy that you can experience in space. Gamma ray bursts happen. They happen from tons of different things uh, that, that, that exist in space. Um, sometimes they come from active galactic nuclei because there's just so much chaos and things that are happening around the center of a galaxy. Lots of things that are accumulating together. And um, a lot of times this can cause strong amounts of emission of different uh, radiation 
radiation would be referred to all the different things in the electromagnetic spectrum. It could be ultraviolet radiation, it could be gamma ray radiation, it could be radio, uh, like like infrared radiation. So you have all these different uh, forms of radiation that happen in space. And uh, what always gets me excited is just the thought of of us stumbling upon another form. Is like is, is there is there a possibility that there's more out there? What do you guys think? Or do you think that this is sort of the limit? This is this is the limit. We think that we've reached all that we might possibly know as far as the radiation in space goes. And that's that's about it. I'm, I'm curious to know what you guys think. Um, one more thing I'll mention about uh, spectroscopy. So another picture that I attached in the bottom right of this portion of the, the newsletter, if in case you're looking at it, um, is uh, it has the different lights, different, sorry, the different colors in the visible light spectrum. So it has violet, indigo, blue, green, yellow, orange, and red. And uh, then it shows these um, absorption lines, these these black lines. And each of these represent different elements. So you have hydrogen, sodium, magnesium, hydrogen F, hydrogen G, and C. Uh, and, and each of these are at different wavelengths, uh, which is really interesting. So the, the, the number scale goes from a wavelength of 400 nanometers at violet to 700 in red. And um, it, again, for perspective, the wavelength, imagine it as like you're drawing like a worm. You're drawing a, a wave, a literal wave. Um, and you're going up and down, you have peaks and troughs. And um, the wavelength gets shorter, so it's not as stretched out when you're on the blue side. But when you're on the red side, it's really stretched out. So like one wave could stretch from like, you know, just imagine that you're just, I'm literally drawing in the air right now and you guys can't see it, but you're just like drawing it on a whiteboard. You'd want to make it like as large and dramatic as possible um, just for, you know, kind of understanding it conceptually. All right. So um, that is, I think that's that's enough for me to say about <laughs> spectroscopy, I guess. Um but, well, no, no, no. I'll say one more thing about it and why, why it matters and why it's important. Um, and I guess in the field, at least of space and astronomy, uh, the reason why spectroscopy is so important is because being able to measure the spectra of objects in space, like stars, um, and then even measuring the spectra when a planet is transiting in front of the star, you're able to discover things like, one, what elements are present within that star, which we kind of understand the majority now of what elements are present in stars because uh, there's a cap at what elements can undergo nuclear fusion and what elements can't. They can't get too heavy. So it usually will stop somewhere, I believe it's around iron, and then it can't continue nuclear fusion. After that, the elements just get way, way too, way too heavy. So there's too many protons uh, and the compression ratio, it just, it just doesn't Something about it just doesn't doesn't exist. I can't really thoroughly explain it right now. But um, with spectroscopy, if you're able to understand what elements are present in stars, it's like hydrogen, helium, uh, other, other elements, um, and then you, a planet passes in front and you then take that spectra again and you see different things, so different absorption lines, you're able to then decipher between what elements were probably from the planet and what elements were from that star, because you start kind of knowing what elements were from that star. So it's kind of like taking a picture, a before and after. Um, 
And this has been really, really helpful for, um, <clears throat> yeah, being able to detect like if there's atmospheres on planets, like what exists on these planets? What are they composed of? So that's in the field of just exoplanets. Um, but it's also been helpful for tons of other things as well. Um, uh, this chart also, I didn't even go over it. It, it mentions, uh, the two different segments of spectroscopy, such as absorption and emission. Absorption is when the, uh, it goes from the ground state to the excited state. This is the um, atoms themselves. This is uh, a lot of times when, oh, gosh, how do I how do I even even explain this? Um, it's when you're either losing or gaining an electron. Um, and the ground state is when it wants to be. I think like inertia. I think it just wants to be like as you know. I saw a scooter the other day and <clears throat> it was laying down on the ground and I kept wanting to go pick it up. Every time I picked it up, it fell over, it fell over, it fell over. It just wanted to be in its ground state and wanted to be relaxed. It wanted to be just, you know, the least effort possible. Um, and so emission is when it emits an electron and it returns back to its ground state. So it goes from an excited state, returns back to its ground. Absorption, it goes from its ground state into excited state. So it's like a, the, so the absorption is like when I took the scooter from being in its ground state and kept propping it up to force it to be into this excited state where it didn't want to be like that. Because the, you know, the, the path, the pavement was uneven and the, um, the, the stand, the kickstand was like a little bit wonky. And so it just kept falling over. And it just wanted to be in its ground state. And so what it did was it became an emission. And so it ended up going from this excited state I was putting it in to falling into its ground state. So that's that. Um, I got to go get some coffee. I'm so tired. <laughs> I'm so sorry, guys, that I, I, if I'm like stumbling on my words, I feel bad that one time I do a, an early podcast episode and I'm just like, yeah, a little, a little bit sleepy. So um, I hope you guys have a wonderful day. Um, to my friends that are on the other side of the planet, I hope you have a wonderful evening. Um, I hope you have clear skies. I hope you can get outside and look up. Um, and maybe you can catch some of the objects that we talked about today. If you're able to see any globular clusters or just star clusters in general, maybe it's the Pleiades, let me know. I'd love to, um, I don't know, just hear about it. Or if you take pictures, I'd love to see it too. I, I love it when you guys send me pictures of things that you take in the sky. Uh, it's, it's, it's so wonderful because I do want, like my goal with this and with Space Talk, with everything I do is to just build more community um, of stargazers, really build more community of people who are wanting to sort of inspire each other to keep that human connection to the cosmos because I feel like we've really begun to lose it more and more as a society. Um and but but I don't want to take back all the things that are kind of causing us to lose it, which is like you know our our, our societies, our industry, our, uh, our our technology, all these buildings we have, all the light pollution, because all this stuff is wonderful in a sense. You know, it's really it's good for us. But at the same time, I I want us to still be able to mutually maintain a balance and connection to, to the night sky, as well as you know still being able to have all the stuff we have, because um, we we live in a in a really a uh, cool, cool world sometimes. All right, everyone. Well, I um, hope you guys have a wonderful rest of your day, a good evening. Um, hope you get to get outside and look at some of those stars we talked about. Um, and yeah, thank you all so much again. I'll talk to you all later. Ad Astra. Bye-bye.